Well, if you have a Bible, open it to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't, that's okay. The words will be on the screen. Also, we want to remind you that there are always Bibles on the back table there that you are free to take and use on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis or just take and have. They're kind of cheaper pew Bibles. And so if you want a better Bible, um, I recommend you check Lost and Found. Sometimes you have to scratch the name out, but hey, um, today we're back in Colossians after talking about our move last week, and we're going to handle one sentence today. It comprises two verses, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This one sentence is one of the most spectacular and important and deep truths in the whole Bible. And there are times, in fact, almost virtually every Sunday, I feel a certain weight of gravity about speaking and preaching before you, even though I've been doing this for a number of years. Jennifer can tell you about Sunday, about Saturday around uh, noon or so, I start to get antsy and anxious, and a weight sort of comes over me that's pretty regular, but there are times when the text that we are covering is so massive and the truth is so profound and so important that it is particularly um, heavy. And this is one of those days. After I preach, we're going to receive communion together, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, together as a church If you are a believer in Jesus, we want to invite you to do that. You don't have to be part of this church, but I think that receiving communion is something that Christians do. If you're not a believer in Jesus yet, listen, this is, as Reynolds very aptly put earlier, this is a safe space for you. Um, And if you're not ready to take communion, even if you're a Christian and you're really not ready to take communion, we don't want you to just get forced into doing that, but we're going to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us, and we're going to dig deep into what he did for us as we look at this sentence. So um, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to back up to the beginning of the chapter, and then I'm going to read all the way through, and we're going to settle down on verses 13 and 14. If, as we mentioned earlier, if you're new to the faith, or you're not yet a believer in Jesus, a follower of him, or not completely bought into the message of the scriptures, that's okay. We want you to, again, feel welcome here. But we want you to know our philosophy and our strategy for doing church and engaging you. We think that it's actually kind of condescending and disrespectful to you to dumb down and water down what we believe in hopes that you will hang around us long enough and eventually figure out what we kind of really believe. We think that's that's an improper way, in fact, in fact, quite disrespectful way of, of being clear about who Jesus is. We're going to preach out of the scriptures, which is what we always do here. We don't start with ideas and then try and gather scriptures around them. We start with scriptures and try and unpack what the inspired author of the text, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying to us, because we believe, as the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that it is God-breathed and profitable for us and for instruction. And it is these very words are able to make us wise for salvation. 
And so if you're investigating Christianity, um, understand that we're incredibly passionate about it, but even as we deliver these truths in passion and uh, assurance, we hope that it's filled with grace and invitation to you. And if you've been a Christian all your life, what we're going to cover today is fundamental orthodox Christianity. And I pray that you and all of us, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, would be renewed and our eyes would be lifted to see how beautiful this truth is and how central, not, not for the beginning of Christianity, but for the whole of our lives in Christ. So let's pray and then let's read and let's get into this beautiful sentence. Lord, as we open up Colossians, as we celebrate communion today, as we have sung to you, as we have gathered together in this room, we realize there are many Christians around the world that are doing the same. In fact, in our very valley, this Chattahoochee Valley that are gathering, we thank you for the churches that believe in Jesus of all different stripes and denominations. We pray a blessing on them. We pray that the pulpits in the Chattahoochee Valley would be filled with the prophetic power of your word and not with human pragmatism. May my preacher brothers preach from the scriptures today. And may the person and work of Jesus become clearer all across this valley and, in fact, all across this world. And God, as we engage these massive truths, this sentence at the end of this passage that we'll read today, I feel particularly inadequate to deliver these truths today. My life is full of hypocrisy. I am painfully aware of that. I am very much in process. I struggle with the vestiges of my old man. Although I am certain that you have bought me and have saved me, I still am very much in process. So, Lord, today, would you draw a straight line with a crooked stick? Would you cause people that are in this room today to be born again by the living and abiding word of God if they are not yet believers in Jesus? Not by their own intellect or wisdom or stick to or gumption, but by your power, would you cause them? Would you make that which is dead alive? And for those of us that are Christians in this room, God, would you drive deep into the soil of our hearts this beautiful truth of the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, and the implications in all of life for us. And then as we gather around the communion table to remember what Jesus did for us, would you cause worship to spring up from the wells of our life? Help us now. Flood this room with the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Keep me close to the text. And give me the grace of self-forgetfulness as I preach to these people that I love so much. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Faith and love are two necessary and um, just Un, just undeniable evidences of our faith in Jesus. 
Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you is indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing. Listen, there are more Christians alive today than there have been cumulatively in the history of the church. Great things are happening. Incredible things are happening worldwide. The gospel bears fruit. In fact, that's the necessary evidence of the gospel. If the gospel has hit our lives, it will bear some measure of fruit. Where there is no fruit, there is no root of the gospel. And so how do you know if you're truly a Christian? Well, is there some measure of fruit? That doesn't necessarily mean some tangible act. It can simply be a love for Jesus that is in its infancy, that over course of time in your life will grow but where there is the root of the gospel there will always be fruit we live in a world of cultural christianity where many times people will lull themselves to sleep by some confession but there's no life to back it up the bible is clear that fruit is the necessary evidence of the true receiving of the gospel as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Think about the Epaphrases of your life. I thank God for my big brother Todd, who, who brought the gospel to me, and a bunch of offensive linemen on his college football team who surrounded me and my parents' din on March 15th, 1989. And they were all about 6'5", 300 pounds, sweaty, stinky offensive linemen. And as the Bible says in Jude, they saved me by fear. (laughs) They preached the gospel to me. And because of their witness, because of those epaphrases, the gospel came to me. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now listen to this, verses 13 and 14, which is where we'll settle down today, this one sentence full of incredible truth. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We could break this sentence down into three or four parts. I think we'll break it down into three parts today. The first part being that he has delivered us, part one. Part two, from the domain of darkness, that's part two. And then part three is the second half of the sentence, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think for logic's sake, what we're going to do is we're going to take part two of that sentence and we're going to look at it first, the domain of darkness, because this sentence starts off with this incredible truth that he has delivered us, but in order to understand what he's delivered us from, we have to go to the second part of the sentence, the domain of darkness, and look at that first. So in a way, we're going to look at this sentence kind of like this, from the domain of darkness, he has delivered us 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So um, from the domain of darkness, that begs a question. Paul is speaking to regular people just like us. This is not a special, this is not like the state penitentiary. These are just regular folks, everyday people, that he is saying to all of them that you have been delivered from this place called a domain of darkness. Now, we have to do some, some work to understand what Paul is saying there is because we're pretty much good Americans, right? Or good South Africans, right? We've got a couple of South Africans here. We, we do not... Everybody look over there. There's our South Africans. Sorry. <laughs> we do not... We do not... They speak English too, by the way. We don't tend to instinctively think of ourselves as people that are saved from anything. We're basically pretty good Americans who grew up in the Bible Belt and some way along the way chose to agree with the moral ethic of Christianity and now we're doing pretty good. But the language of the scriptures is so stark, it's so decisive, and it is so contra-cultural Christianity because Paul is saying to these Colossians and to good little law-abiding Americans like most of us that we were in, and maybe some of us still are in, a domain of darkness. So what does that mean? Well, we could take a whole Sunday to unpack the doctrine of sin and what sin has done to us and how it has rendered us completely unable to save ourselves, but we won't do that. But I will take just a few minutes. If you've got a Bible, well, I'll tell you what. We're going to read a lot of scriptures today. I'm going to have all the notes posted on the Internet uh, by tomorrow afternoon. It might just serve you better just to listen rather than flip around unless you've got fast thumbs. But um, just listen. Don't feel the pressure to write all these scriptures down. We're going, to, we're going to get to all of them. We will post it all on the Internet. But listen to this. This is an incredibly important verse. Romans chapter 5. Verse, uh, let's start in verse, verse 12. Now, this is weighty, difficult logic. And it's, uh, it's a portion of Scripture that has been written about by theologians for centuries. And this is the doctrine of what is called inherited sin, meaning that as people that, that are born, that all of us are born in guilt. We are born, we are like our parents, just as we have, just as we have the DNA of our parents, like my boys and my little daughter has my DNA and Jennifer's DNA. In fact, my oldest son, Joseph, he's 11 years old, and he's got the little Italian curse. He's only a quarter Italian. I'm half, he's a quarter, and he's got a little mustache in the fifth grade. Creepy little Italian kid. He got that, he got that from me. Like, he, you can't deny it. The poor little kid got the hair gene. He got it from his dad, who got it from his dad, who got it from his dad, all of whom have, well, anyway. So we, and likewise, spiritually, we get a DNA, a sin gene from our first parent, which is, our first parents, which is Adam and Eve, and it's passed down through humanity. And this is what the scripture says, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Listen to this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So in a mysterious way, Adam, as the representative of all humanity, not only 
sinned and therefore polluted and diseased humanity with his sin, but in a strange sort of mysterious way, we all were sort of represented in that fall and in that rebellion in the garden. And what has happened? Has sin just sort of incapacitated us or made us less than what we were intended to be? Well, well, yes, but it's also, and this is clear here, it has not just not just minimized us, it has killed us spiritually. And so we are physically alive, eventually we'll die because of sin. The flesh will die because of sin. We may be emotionally alive, but we're broken, separated from God. But spiritually, this is hard for us as folks that grew up in the Bible Belt to chew on, but we are spiritually dead. By nature, because we're children of Adam and Eve, and by our own choice. Romans chapter 3, just a couple verses over. We've spent a lot of time on this chapter here. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. And so unlike a little kid who grows up and says, I'm not going to be like my dad, he would get angry and I'm just not going to be like that. Although some of us have stronger wills or constitutions than others, none of us can escape this inherited nature that we have as children of Adam. We are all born separated from God. And so not only by nature, but also by choice, every person in this room is separated from God and born spiritually dead. In fact, that's the language we'll get to in Colossians chapter 2. It says you were dead in your trespasses and so we are in a domain of darkness now here's the difficulty go to second corinthians if you're flipping with me go to second corinthians chapter four the challenge is is even seeing this because we live in a in a culture that is addicted to self-affirmation and feel-goodism and so most of us probably don't even grow up in a culture where we even see ourselves as spiritually dead and even in need of a Savior. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's writing and he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. By the way, this isn't the point that I'm going to making out of this passage, but that's the point that I was making earlier, that if you're not yet a believer, I think the, most, the, the, the best thing we can do for you is clearly explain the fundamental truth, even the hard truth of Christianity, that we would, an open statement of the truth, not try and dumb it down and trick you into this place by some self-help sermon and lights and like cool people (laughs) christianity is not cool christianity is not it's not given to help to, to give you a helpful more pragmatic functional life christianity is meant to cause the created order to give glory and honor and worship to god who is the rescuer redeemer not the helper and improver of american culture But I digress, that's not even my point. Verse 3, listen to this now. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Check this out now, this is important. All of us have been under this verse at some point in our lives, and maybe still some are today. And I pray by the 
power and the grace of the Trinity and the Spirit of God would hit you today and this veil would be lifted from your eyes. Listen to this. Verse 4. In their case, meaning those who are perishing, the God of this world, small g there, meaning Satan, there's a real enemy, the devil, who's out to destroy you. Not just minimize you, but to destroy you. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there are people all over this world who are in the domain of darkness because of their sin, because of their inherited sin, because of their choice of sin. And then Satan comes and piggybacks on that and blinds them and keeps them from seeing the glory of the light of Christ. Do you see the contrast, the domain of darkness and the glory of the light of Christ? And so there are people who are as lost as the day is long that don't even see it, that don't even realize it. And they think that people like us are absolutely out of our mind because we think that we had to be saved from something. That's why Christianity, when you preach it faithfully from the Bible, is ferociously opposed. Because the cross, and what I'm saying today, is offensive to people who are blinded. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Check this out. This is hard. Verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're going to get into this a little bit more in just a second. But if you are a believer in Jesus and you have seen the light of Christ, it is because God moved on your soul and shined the light of Christ on you. Not because you figured it out. Not because you're smarter than the next guy down the street. Because God, by His irresistible grace, overcame your hardened heart. And pulls you out of that darkness. And that's an important, absolutely fundamental point of Christianity that should cause worship in our souls. Which we're going to get to in a second. But the point I'm wanting to draw from 2 Corinthians 4 is that we, and those that are perishing, those of us that were perishing, that now know Jesus, or those that are still perishing, all of us at some point in our life have been in, or are still in, a domain of darkness because of our sin, because we are children of Sin, children of wrath by nature and by choice. And so here's the whole point I'm trying to make today is that you don't need help. You don't need help. You don't need improvement. You don't need seven steps on how to have a better Tuesday afternoon. You need, we need, I need to be saved from the domain of darkness, which all of us, at least in some point in our life, have been in and maybe some of us are still there today. Why is this important to realize? Because we are, listen, if you don't hear anything today, hear this. And I pray that this is offensive to you, that even these words would cause light to come to your soul. Because we are totally unable. This is one of the bedrock doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. We are totally unable to save ourselves. Christ saves us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And even that faith that we exercise as a necessary means of our salvation is given to us by God. And so, unless you realize the futility of your 
state before Christ rescues your soul, you are missing one of the very, very important truths of Christianity, and we'll get to in a second why it is so important. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, and right now angst and anger and offense is rising up in your soul, you are, you are living out the truth of the Scriptures that says that this message is an offense to the unbeliever. Let that be evidence to you that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Him. Yes, there is no other way than Jesus. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Christ Himself gives you the ability to believe and see. God shines His light on you and He causes you. That's the biblical language. He causes you to be born again. And if you're even sensing that right now, I believe that that is evidence of the Holy Spirit moving on your soul, drawing you even in your anger and rebellion, making the words of the gospel come alive to your heart and bringing life to you. You right now, I believe, are passing through the birth canal of salvation. And we'll talk about what it is to be a Christian and how you do that in just a moment. But here's the point that I want to make is we are totally unable to save ourselves. And therefore... We need deliverance. And that's the first part of the sentence that we've made part two of our sentence. He has delivered us. What exactly did Jesus do for us? This is important. It's a small nuance, but it's an important nuance. And it will cause, when you grab a hold of this truth, it will cause worship to spring up in your soul. Christ, listen to me now carefully. What has Christ done for us? He has not just made possible the way of salvation, that when human effort is added to it, causes salvation. He has, remember, because how can a dead human, how can a dead human add something to what Jesus did to affect it and make it active? Dead people don't contribute anything. So what has Jesus done for us? Jesus has not just made possible the way for salvation so that minimized human beings can of their own effort augment what Jesus did on the cross and then make it come into effect. Jesus has saved you if you're a Christian. He saved you. He delivered you. Let me read some scriptures that point to that. And again, we could spend all day on this particular point of truth, but we don't have time. Well, I have the time, but you wouldn't stay. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen, this is so powerful. This is a verse you, you, you may want to. Hebrews chapter 10. This is a verse to know, especially verse 14, what we'll get to in just a second. But Hebrews 10. Verse, let's start with verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. This is Hebrews goes with the Old Testament book of Leviticus, which talks about the sacrificial system of the priests making sacrifices. There's this beautiful parallel between the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system of killing birds and goats and bulls 
as a temporary atonement yearly, and then Christ who fulfills once and for all so that we don't have to make sacrifices, we don't have to kill animals, we don't have to do enough good works to appease God, but Christ once and for all has appeased God's justice and wrath on the cross for us, and he becomes our perfect high priest once and for all. So in verse 11 it says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. So He's speaking about Old Testament sacrifice of animals, but in our application of our life, just the the good works, the offering of good works to appease God will never, it doesn't take away sins. It doesn't do it, it doesn't cut it. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, meaning his, his death and his burial and his resurrection on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen to this, verse 14. This is past tense, but then it's also future. It's like, unbelievably grammatically incorrect, but it's in the Bible, so it's correct. Verse 14. For by a single offering, his death on the cross, he has perfected, past tense, he did it, he sealed it, so... He has perfected, he has won, he has saved, he has bought, he has redeemed for all time those who are being sanctified. And so in a sense, our salvation is still ongoing. I've still got a whole bunch of improvement to do. I've got, still got a whole bunch of holiness to pursue. But Christ saved me once and for all before time began. Read Ephesians 1. It says that he knew my name, he predestined me, he called me, he saved me, he gave me redemption. Before I even uttered one, one breath of belief towards him, he saved me. And if you're a Christian, he saved you. And, and if you are even hearing me today, and you're not yet a Christian, he right now, I believe, may be saving you as well. But he delivered you. He delivered me. Not Brad's wit, not Brad's intelligence, not Brad's Western civilization, not by good works. Christ saved me. And if you're a Christian, he saved you. Why is this so important? I mean, this is good news. Because if it was based solely on what I could bring to the table in my intuition or my intellect, do you see how absolutely horrible that would be? Because then where would be the cutoff line? Where's, if, where, where's the, the line on human goodness that becomes sort of the, the mark? Like, oh, yeah, yeah Brad, Brad's IQ is just a little bit better than yours. And so you didn't, oh, you, you didn't make it. I'm sorry. Do you see how this is good news that Christ says, look, there's an Old Testament parallel to this. I want you to see this because this isn't just, this is, this is the story of the whole Bible, not just the story of Hebrews or the story of Colossians. This is what God has been doing from the beginning of the scriptures. Go to Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 6. This is beautiful. You've got to see this. Exodus 6. All right, this is, you're familiar, I hope, with Moses and the story of Moses delivering God's people out of Egyptian slavery. They got into that slavery because of their own choice, right? So sin. Look, the Old Testament is a picture of salvation 
for all time. It is, it is the story of every individual believer. The Old Testament, Israel is me. Israel is you. It is God redeeming a people who do not be de- deserve to be redeemed. And it is God doing it, not the Israelites figuring it out on themselves and making themselves good enough and exercising faith in a God. It is God who gives them the faith, turns their heart towards them, takes their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh so they can believe in him. Listen to this now in Exodus chapter 6. This is the beginning of the Exodus story where the people are in captivity in Egypt. God has raised up Moses and now he's calling Moses out and he's telling him what he's going to do and how he's going to deliver his people. Notice the verbs. Notice who's doing the acting here. It's not when, when, when Israel figures it out or when Israel exercises enough faith or when Israel gets smart enough, God's going to be doing it all. And he's going to tell Moses exactly what he's going to do. So Exodus 6. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh. He was somewhere when this sentence was being uttered. Can you imagine that? If God's talking to one of his prophets, this is what I'm going to do to that. Oh, man, I would not want my name in that sentence. Now, this is what I'm going to do to that punk Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to, them, I, said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel. By the way, it's important to realize that God, what he's going to do here, he's not going to do this because of primarily because of the groanings of his people. He says he's going to do this because of the covenant that he established with them before they even knew which way was up. And so, yes, God listens to prayer and God moves on behalf of prayer. But God moves because he's sovereign, and our prayers are part of the sovereign plan of God. So listen to this, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's not saying, if you will read your Bible a little bit more, if you will think good thoughts, if you will start living according to these principles, then your life will approve to such a point, and more people will follow you, and then I'll give you a military strategy, and then we'll help you, we'll mass some troops on the border here, and then we'll do this. He's saying that I will deliver you, you helpless, dead slaves. That's us. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. When Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, this language of deliverance is echoing the deliverance of the people of Israel from the captivity of the Egyptians where they were in this domain of darkness. Likewise, Jesus does the same for us. He rescues us. He saves us. Why is this so important? And some of you may be saying, well, I I get that. I get that. I mean, easy, Brad. Slow it down, killer. I got you. 
one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians is because there is a super spiritual guru. Remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago? Epaphras is the founder of the church in Colossae. He has learned the gospel from Paul in the city of Ephesus a couple of years before at the revival of Ephesus. Then he goes back to his hometown of Colossae. He preaches the true gospel that Paul delivered to him. And this church springs up and starts. And now, a few years later, some sort of Oprah, Deepak Chopra-like super spiritual figure is coming to the Colossian church and is preaching to them a veiled, false version of Christianity, saying that, yeah, yeah, don't do away with your Jesus. No, Jesus is, it's like the Doobie Brothers song. Jesus is just all right with me. Yeah, Jesus is cool. Keep your Jesus. But if you will do this then you will attain to a higher level of understanding and you will truly understand truth. And Paul is refuting that super spirituality. It's that Jesus plus some functional savior, Jesus plus Greek philosophy, or Jesus plus this thing, that if you will do that, Jesus is cool because the devil will never come along to people like us and say, oh, abandon Jesus. He will say, add something to it, and over the course of time, we will lean on that functional Savior more than we lean on the one who delivered us from death. And so, Paul, why is it so important that we see that it is Jesus who delivers us and not ourselves, and that Jesus, remember Galatians a couple years ago, come on, give it to me for the seven of you that were part of the church a couple years ago, Jesus plus Nothing equals salvation. Paul is saying is don't rely on functional saviors in our culture, in our world, in America is full of functional saviors. They want to suck the glory away from the cross. Diet pills. 401k plans. The right program at school. The whatever it is. Functional saviors. Do you realize your functional saviors? Do you realize the things that are still yet to be perfected souls want to lean on instead of Jesus? If I could just do this, a functional savior for this church might be this Zoo City Mansour's building. I mean, do you realize how, how, how just how, how slyly it can creep in? We got a building now! Now! We can start being the church that God has called us to be. And it's like the Trinity's up there saying, oh, come again? <laughs> really? We want to prop ourselves up on functional saviors. If I just get this, if I just lose this amount of weight, if I can just get this girl to like me, if I can just get into this program, if I can just get to this job, if I can just do this, if I can just have this group of friends, if, 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 functional saviors. And so why is it so important to realize that it is Christ alone that saves us? Because that is something that will ground us, that will keep, keep us stable and steadfast throughout the life of our, our time here on this earth. That it is Jesus alone who saves. And he has delivered us. One more point before I move on and end this. It's important to realize that he has not delivered all of us. This is not a universal redemption. It's only for those who repent and believe in Jesus. And if you have not done that, today is the day 
salvation, the scripture says. This may be one of the most important verses you ever read. Let me go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, at the end of that beautiful chapter, Jesus says some very important and hard words. Jesus says in John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So who has Jesus delivered? Those. Listen, I want to be very clear because this is the crux of what it is to be saved. And not those who attend church. Not those who agree with the ethics of Christianity. Not those who just think that the Ten Commandments are a good way to build a society. But those who believe in Jesus. Now, what does believing mean biblically? Believing is not just giving cognitive agreement. Like, I believe, I believe, it used to be Fidel, but now it is Raul Castro. Thank you for those of you that used to correct me all the time. Raul Castro is the president of Cuba. I believe that. But that doesn't make me a Cuban. <laughs> I'm not a Cuban. I would have to actually go to Cuba, renounce U.S. citizenship, and become, and put my trust in, and put my feet on the soil of Cuba, and believe See how this is different and have faith in and trust in and stand on the soil of Cuba in order to be a Cuban. And that's what saving faith is. It's not just believing that the San Diego Chargers got robbed in the game against the Jets. It's not just believing that Raul Castro is the president of Cuba. It's not just believing that Jesus was a real person who died on the cross. It is a treasuring, an embracing, a moving towards, a renouncing of your previous citizenship, and a moving towards in your imperfection, in the new life and faith that God has given you, and a standing on that truth, an embracing, and a treasuring, a grasping, a hugging, a holding on to that truth as the one pearl of great price and treasure in this entire universe. That is saving faith. And you may say, oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. It's not perfection. It's not sinlessness. It's not knowing all the Bible. It is an embracing. It is a treasuring. It is a grasping the beauty and the joy and the holiness and the greatness of God and saying, I give myself to that. And simultaneously, when you do that, you renounce. You leave the old country. You go. You repent. You go away. And you go too. Repenting and believing are two edges of the same sword of saving faith. And Jesus says that he has delivered those that have done that. But those that have not done that, the wrath of God remains on them. Don't leave this place today. How do we encourage you to become a Christian at Cross Point? By repenting and believing. Right now, somebody, right now in this room, somebody I believe is repenting and believing. 
just look, in some church cultures, it's helpful to raise a hand or fill out a sheet. I'm not bashing that. I'm not being sarcastic about that. But do you see that when you do that, it can cause you to think that in that little act there, that that thing kind of seals the deal for you. No, it doesn't. That may be helpful if you want to pray in a little bit. We're going to end this thing, and some guys are going to come lead some worship. We're going to receive communion. If you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. But you become a Christian by embracing the treasure of Christ on the cross, who died for your sins, who is the only sacrifice for human fallenness, and who makes you alive. Embracing that, believing that, trusting that, letting that be your all-encompassing treasure of your life. That's what a Christian is. And he has delivered those that repent and believe. And I end with this. I know it's getting late. This third part of our sentence now. He has delivered us and transferred us from the domain of darkness. I'm sorry. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins first peter chapter 2 has a beautiful truth and this truth is is that Jesus's intention in saving us is not just to secure an eternal redemption for us not just to pull us out of death but to actually bring us into his light it says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so this is important here. You see, do you see this? You see how, how still messed up we are? Christ delivered us, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his son. But let's, let's be honest. Like positionally, what we've just talked about is where we are. Positionally, we are in Christ. But let's be honest. We're still pretty rugged and ragged, aren't we? Practically, we're still pretty jacked up. I mean, hang around us for a while. You'll get talked about. You'll get slandered. You'll get looked down upon. You'll get backbit. You'll get disappointed. That's, we're, we're still pretty ragged. We're in this process of sanctification. And so how does this work out practically in our lives? Well, we, we must create a culture of rugged redemption here where the truth that we just unpacked about how he has delivered us from the domain of darkness is the all-encompassing beautiful truth of the atonement. But now practically, we are very, very much in progress. We are rugged. We are rugged, ragged people who are in the process of being sanctified. Why is this messy, rugged process necessary? Get this, because we're good little church kids in here, and we grew up in a culture where we, 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 we force people to act like Christians way before the, like, they really are living for Christ. Look, the reason why we are in such a messy, rugged process of salvation and sanctification is because as we are delivered from the domain of darkness, as we repent and believe, and then in our messed up, rugged honesty, we come and live together as messed up, jacked up, beautiful, redeemed, in-process Christians, because as we do that, as God allows, gets in our 
community weaving in our slow, rugged, beautiful, persistent growth become, listen to this, an aroma of Christ to a lost world that needs to see the work of Christ honestly in a community. And we become an aroma of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 through 17, it says, To those that are perishing, we're like the scent of death. But to those whom God is saving, we are an aroma of Christ. And so as we are honest, as we are real, as we don't just come and do Sunday morning with each other and then run off to our little caves and reappear when we're ready to act religious. But as we get real with each other, as we meet in each other's homes, as we confess sin to one another, as we pray with one another, as we struggle with our marriages with one another, as we battle lust with one another, as we battle anger with one another, we become a beautiful representation of how God redeems His people because it's a mess. And the sooner we can buy into the rugged, beautiful process of redemption, the more God-glorifying we will be. And the more people, and this is the beautiful paradox, the more people will be drawn to Christ because they realize it's for them as well. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Have you been delivered? Have you repented and believed? If you haven't, the glory of the gospel has brought light to your heart right now. Do that right now. Repent and believe. Treasure Christ. Have you done that? But you've propped up in your life like most of us, all of us have, functional saviors. Right now, think about your functional saviors. Lay them down at the foot of the cross. And say, God, remind me that it is Jesus alone who delivers, not the American dream. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Well, we're going to celebrate that here around this communion table. This little chip of bread represents how Christ delivered us by his substitute on the cross for us, by his sacrifice on the cross for us, and by his resurrection, defeating death and sin and all its consequences, and not just making possible a way for those that would believe but securing for all time redemption for those who will believe. We're going to celebrate that today. Lord, as we close our time of message and move into remembering the cross, I pray very simply two things. For those that are in this room today who have, by the speaking of your word, in your truth, it has become clear to them that they are in a domain of darkness. God, I pray that that person now would not resist your grace and that they would repent and believe in their imperfection, in their futility, in their 
small, childlike, mustard seed, tiny little faith that you've given them. I pray that they would embrace and treasure the work of Christ on the cross as the all-encompassing jewel of the universe. And that then you would make them alive. As Ephesians 2 says, that you would make them alive by your grace. Right now, God, I pray that somebody would repent and believe. That they would renounce citizenship in the domain of darkness. And they would embrace and treasure Jesus, the crucified, resurrected Redeemer of all things. Mm -hmm.